Welcome to First Generation Burden, a podcast dedicated to immigrants in the creative community. My name is Rich Tu, and I'm your host. First off, happy new year, everyone, and happy post-holidays. This is the first episode of 2023, and today we have a designer, typographer, design director, creative technologist, she's everything. Also, recent Young Guns 20 winner, Beatrice Lozano. Uh, Beatrice and I have actually known each other for a few years now through the Sunday Afternoon family, and I'm really glad she could join us today. She's worked with clients like Planned Parenthood, Snapchat, ESPN, where she launched the ESPN 50 identity that debuted in 2022. We talk about uh, growing up in Michigan as part of a first-generation Mexican household, how activism is a core part of her creative identity, and also why disruption is a good thing. And uh, it's a really fun conversation. Can't wait for y'all to hear it. Without further ado, here's Beatrice Lozano. First off, like, thanks for jumping in today and also for having this conversation. So for the listener, we did a version of this in person that became lost to the technology gods. <laughs> so we are, we're, this is, I think that might be the, maybe the second time that's ever happened on this podcast. Thank you for being such a good sport and, uh, and, you know, having this, this awesome convo in the morning, by the way, this might be as early as we ever do it. So appreciate you. Beatrice. Yeah, of course. I mean, this was so fun. You know, Rich, I'm down to do this every week. We can uh, re-record the new version. <laughs> can you imagine like, that's an interesting podcast concept where you just try to recreate the last conversation that you had, but strictly for memory. It would be like Groundhog Day and then that game of telephone where you're just like repeating everything <laughs> slightly off. Be like, yes, that, I'm a photographer, illustrator. That is me. <laughs> totally. By the end, it's like, yeah, I'm an astronaut slash <laughs> uh, geological uh, scientist. Who knows? By Just the end, I'm like, I'm rich too. <laughs> I, I know. Oh, by by the end. You're rich and I'm Beatrice. We yeah, just switch by the roles. We'll just fully morphed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where are you calling from right now? I'm in San Diego, California. So if it's early for you, it's even earlier for me. Oh my God. I didn't even think about that. Thank you again. <laughs> oh yeah, no problem. No, no, I suggested this time because I really thought I was going to be working early. Um, uh, okay. So yeah, I'm happy it all worked out. And you're a morning person, right? I know we haven't officially started this Godvo, but you are a morning I am. person. Yeah, yeah, I would have not recovering workaholic if I wasn't. Yeah, yeah, in pro, yeah. So definitely a morning person. Amazing. All right, well, let's start this conversation the way we start every conversation. So t please tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Uh, again, Beatrice, thanks for being here. Of course, yes. So I'm Beatrice Lozano or Beatrice, and I'm a designer, typographer, educator morning person and um i primarily work out of brooklyn new york but i'm currently here visiting family in san diego and i'd say my work is really just at this intersection of like design typography technology and um, social impact work yeah i would love to hear a little bit about some of the the inspirations that you had like you know, growing up in San Diego, there's there's so much, you know, vis um, visual stimulus and also creative stimulus. And also hear a little bit about your journey um, from San Diego to Michigan yes. to, to New York. Yeah, let's hear a little bit about it. Yeah. So, you know, I wish I grew up here in San Diego, but uh, I was born here. Um, my siblings and I, we lived here for a couple of years. And then when I was three, we ended up moving to the suburbs of Detroit, so Metro Detroit. And that's essentially where I grew up, went to college, and then I moved out to New York in 2017. Yeah, what was it like growing up in Detroit? And also what was your, um, what was the, the, the culture like, the, the community like? Yeah, so I think more, obviously because I was so young and I don't remember it, I think it was a huge culture shock for my parents because they got married and they met here in San Diego and they lived here in this very house where I'm calling in from. And currently I'm in City Heights, San Diego. So it's a very like working class Mexican neighborhood. And then uh, because of a, jo a job opportunity, my parents ended up moving to Metro Detroit, which was essentially the white suburbs of Michigan. Um, so we were one of the only families that were not white which was uh, definitely not the funnest experience. 
Um, and also here in City Heights, a lot of the schools here are bilingual. It's very common for children to grow up speaking uh, both Spanish and English. So um, when we started school, my siblings and I didn't speak English, which again, that I do remember, like being <laughs> like five and being in the classroom of like not understanding anybody. Yeah. Um, so um, I think those first years were definitely a bit of a culture shock, but over time, I just always feel so fortunate that I was able to find some truly great, like lifelong friends who I'm still really close with. Um, primarily it ends up being like the other few like immigrant kids, like either mm -hmm. from like Iraq or Pakistan. And, um, but yeah, I mean, overall, I would say I had like a really wonderful childhood and upbringing, even though it was just like my immediate family, because all of my dad's family is in near Mexico City. And then all of my mom's family is here, like in San Diego, Tijuana. Got it. Oh, wait, so you're in you're currently in the house that your parents um, initially lived in in San Diego. Oh, so your, yeah. your family had like a couple different houses. That's cool. Yeah. So my parents um, ended up getting this house. I think after, I'm not sure if I was born yet, but like very early 90s. Um, and I think it was one of just like the best decisions that they've ever made because, <laughs> you know, over time, this now neighborhood is now getting slightly, you know, gentrified. Sure. Um, and I mean, the prices are going up. So I'm like, it was a great business decision on my parents' uh, yeah. side. I mean, I never want to sell the house because I love it so much. Like we have like fruit trees here, like a pomegranate tree that my grandma planted. And yeah. I don't know, I just really love the house. I would never want to sell it. Was it one it. of those, was it one of those family houses that, because I had this experience growing up where my mother, um, she invested in a house in New Jersey that all of her siblings ended up living in, at least at some point from their journey from the Philippines to New Jersey, let's say. And it just became that that stopping point where, you know, like, let's say a sibling, an auntie or an uncle would eventually you know get married or, you know, kind of move on or do whatever. Uh, they would always live at least a few years in that house. So was that house the same over there? Yeah, definitely. It's always funny how there's this like shared immigrant experience, even though we're all coming from different countries and backgrounds. Um, yeah, so my parents moved to Michigan early 90s, and then they just moved back to San Diego a couple of years ago when my dad retired. So throughout those almost like over 20 years, it was like my grandma or my aunts and uncles mm. and cousins and different family members, family friends who have been living in this house. Um, and, you know, I think it's so wonderful that now my parents can come back and, you know, ex it, like experience this new neighborhood and house in a new way now. That's dope. What'd your parents do? So my parents are now retired, but my dad was an electrician at Chrysler, a maintenance electrician. Um, so essentially like a auto factory worker. And then my mom was a stay at home mom uh, for many years. And but before that, she was also a factory worker here in San Diego working at different factories, like making pasta or like making jackets. She just always has the best stories from like her 20s. <laughs> so uh, were your parents uh, encouraging of, of your creative pursuits? I know that you had a background in uh, mechanical engineering and you were initially on that path, but uh, what was that journey um, to to being where you are? You've been a you've been a design director. You, you know, you are a designer and also you just won Young Guns 20 this year. Like what that, that that's a, those are huge leaps over a short, <laughs> short amount of time. It is. Yeah. So. I'm a big believer in like action and like showing people like what you believe in through your actions and not necessarily verbally, which I always think is sort of amusing because like I think verbally my parents were not necessarily the most supportive because <laughs> they were really encouraging of my siblings and I to get really steady jobs to go to college just because they didn't have those opportunities. And so when I showed that interest in engineering, I think they saw like a huge like sense of security and safety in that. But at the same time, like my brother and my sister and I have always been very like creative. We've always loved to draw. And my parents were always so encouraging of that when we were children, like they would always buy us art supplies. They would always let us like make a mess of the house and draw everywhere um, and like sign us up for classes if we wanted to. Um, so I think that 
to me just goes back to that showing their support through action like even though maybe that's not what they intended but they were really like fostering a real a real sense of creativity for uh my siblings and i yeah so what does that look like and when it comes to your your academic track like so you're in high school you're pursuing creativity in earnest uh but not really yeah so ever since i was young like um I also have a twin sister so and she's also yeah. very artistically inclined so like both of us were always like drawing and like in these like competitions and all this stuff and so when it came to high school um I mean we also grew up like in Metro Detroit not the best you know high school uh public you know public education we did not have like shout an out AP. to public schools yeah shout out always shout out to public schools like if you, uh, you know, if we didn't learn anything in school, at least it gave us character. That's what I like to believe. <laughs> um, and so we didn't have like an AP art program, but my sister and I were so fortunate that one of the teachers, I think she was teaching French, uh, went originally to get her bachelor's in art. And so she saw that we were talented and we had an interest in this. So she would let us sit in the back of her French class and she like coached us through creating an AP art portfolio, which was like such a really kind gift, you know, shout out to Miss Kay. And um, she was helping us create this APR portfolio, but at the same time, I was really set on being an engineer. So I was really confused. I'm like, why am I making an APR portfolio? I don't see myself necessarily going to art school. Like I know I'm going to be an engineer. Yeah. And thankfully things ended up working out where one of the best engineering programs was at the University of Michigan. And they also happen to offer this program called a dual degree where you can be in both tracks at the same time getting your engineering degree and an art degree. Um, and so I just thought that was just the perfect opportunity. So I ended up applying to both colleges, thankfully getting into both colleges. Um, but from the very beginning, when I started attending the University of Michigan, I was always set on like my career, I was going to be a mechanical engineer. And specifically, I was really interested in maybe creating prosthetics. Um, I was you know, I think a lot of that interest still carries on in my work today, but I was like very interested in like solid works and building something in like 3D and making yeah. it work and, um, you know, using those engineering skills, hopefully for good. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, essentially I started off in both colleges and then over time I ended up just like really leaning into the art side of it and the design world and leaving engineering behind. Yeah, and then at Michigan, you you got your your first taste in in design is that correct that you yeah yeah you did a big project over there that also had like a a, a life and social impact for sure yeah so i uh for my freshman year um at the university of michigan i became very involved in um i would say activism specifically immigrant rights activism and that for me was such a big moment because as I mentioned, I grew up in the suburbs of Metro Detroit. So even though Detroit itself is super diverse because of something called white flight, all the you know white people from Detroit moved to the suburbs. And now the suburbs were fully dominated by uh, white families. And so when I grew up, I didn't grow up around other Latino kids, rarely around other um, like first generation or like working class immigrants. And when I got to college, I finally found people who sort of shared those same experiences, who shared those same passions. Um, and I ended up joining a group called the Coalition for Tuition Equality, where we were really fighting for um, ways for undocumented students to be able to gain a higher education. And I was also volunteering at an English as a second language class in uh, Southwest Detroit, where I was working with adults who were just learning English. Um, and that for me was just something that was so like um, normal, maybe because like my parents speak especially back then we're speaking like broken English we're still trying to learn English themselves and yeah. it was just something that I was so accustomed to doing like helping them learn English or helping them translate different things um, and then later on in college I also uh, founded a ACT prep program in mm. the Cesar Chavez high school also in southwest Detroit it feels like social uh, social impact and also really social responsibility is plays such a big part into who you are as a creative what did did you feel that or what were you just naturally finding yourself in these spaces to to provide help 
or are you actively seeking it? Yeah, so I think I found activism first, and then through my yeah. activism work, I found design. Um, and so through the Coalition for Tuition Equality, like they needed posters, they needed flyers, they needed websites. And because I loved to be creative and I loved to draw and paint, I was like, well, I think I can figure this out. Like, I think I can figure out how to make a poster. And that's essentially how I began designing, even though back then I didn't call it design. I didn't really know that was a career. I didn't really understand what I was doing. Uh, but I think this pull towards uh, community and I, I don't exactly know what the right term is. I don't know if it's activism or like yeah. social impact work, but I, I think, think it's all. It. Yeah, yeah, we all get it. Yeah, um, it's all related. I think, yeah. I think a big reason for that is obviously like uh, being so close to like my parents and like my family back home and just understanding that their lived experience was so different than mine, but also sort of taking like the positives from their experience, especially when they were first like immigrating here to the U.S. where there were Mexican-American people like myself who had that American yeah. privilege who really helped them out along the way and who still had enough of that culture to be empathetic and understand in a way that maybe people who don't have those connections can't necessarily connect uh, with them. And so I felt like a, it was really important for me to use my own privilege as an American-born Latina to pay it back somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's amazing. Well, uh, what I love about that is, well, well, one, I just, I just love hearing um, creatives, especially designers, um, essentially finding their voice through activism like you. And also because, you know, design is, is meant to communicate and also solve problems. But it feels like what you've done such a good job at is using design to provide tools and that becomes the, the problem solve, you know? Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I want to talk more about like how, how you're creating tools and, and, and tools to empower essentially, but that, that's so wonderful to hear. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think for me, design is always about, as you mentioned, like creating tools and like being able to communicate with the populations that you want to communicate with. Um, and often, uh, like social justice, um, organizations or different communities, especially if your primary primary language is English, you, you don't have access to what was considered like experienced graphic design. Often you just get very um, thoughtless design or forms of communication thrown at you. And that, why for, that's why for me, it's so important to be able to use everything I learned along the way throughout like all my jobs and all my experience working with different like brands to be able to find a way to always come back and use those skills to communicate back to the Latino community, to immigrant communities. That's amazing. How'd you find your way to New York? So um, once I really like fell in love with design, I was really, really fortunate to meet my professor, uh, Frank Nunukuroku, uh, at the University of Michigan. And he previously lived in New York. He worked on like on a book with Paul Rand. He was very much about like mid-century design. And I remember in his class, he played us all these different films, including like Milton Glaser's film, you know, showed us really the work of Massimo Vignelli. And that's when I really began to fall in love with design. And I think a big part of that was also my, still my inclination towards like the technical side of, mm -hmm. you know, engineering and like numbers and building systems. And that's still very much what I love about design. And so I think back then I was definitely like had such a small understanding of the design world. Mm. But just through that one class, I was like, well, if I want to learn the, as much as I can, I have to move to New York. That's where all the great designers are. <laughs> you know, like it's not going to be here, like in Metro Detroit, like I have to, you know, learn from the best and in order to do that, I need to move to New York. Um, and so once I graduated, I was just so set on moving to New York and I was like, I just need to apply to every single job that I can. And so I really remember just like applying to like 200 jobs. Like that was essentially my, you know, like full-time <laughs> yeah. job was applying. And again, I, I feel so fortunate that my parents were really, uh, well, to their best of their ability, understanding of like me being at home like depressed and unemployed and just applying to a bunch of jobs in New York and like really being set on moving there. 
Um, and then thankfully, you know, I finally heard back just from one job and it was at a, an ad agency, a small ad agency. And so shout out to Kai for giving me my first opportunity and like really fighting for me. And for that summer, I was an intern and I was just essentially making banner ads for American Express. But I was just like so thrilled to have made it to New York and to just get like my foot in the door. Yeah. Oh, and then you were also a an intern at Morco's Key, right? I was, yeah. So I moved into New York in summer of 2017. And then with yeah. Marcos Key, I didn't work with them until. Shout out to John and YL. YL, yes, uh, we friend of the them. pod, guest of the pod. <laughs> in like early 2019, I was finally able to get like their, what they call like designer in residence. So it is like an internship, but what I really loved about that experience, it's really like focused on the designer and you, they ask you to come in with a personal project and they'll help mm -hmm. you build this personal project. Um, and yeah, so I just have so much gratitude and love for uh, John and Weil. It's so interesting hearing your inspiration to mid-century design too, because it feels like mid-century design was the last time that the, the the flat graphic design had an actual relationship to to physical form when it comes to the lines and also the specific weight of certain graphical forms and how that translates into a three-dimensional space also has very much a mechanical engineering approach right but now the, the, you know i think those relationships are a bit are very different now and like you know one's a bit more system driven and physical form is you know something else right now uh, but what what did you learn about authorship and personal authorship once you started, you know, pursuing your own career trajectory, especially when at a place like Marcos Key and also at Sunday Afternoon where you were design director for a couple of years? Like what what have you discovered about yourself? Hmm, that's a great question. I mean, I think for me, it's always important, like regardless of who your influences are, to let your perspective shine through and to use your voice to share your perspective and your experiences through your work and not try to make your work like somebody else's. Like even though I think, especially earlier in my career, I was very much inspired by mid-century design. I don't think my work comes off like that. Like I'm trying to replicate, I don't know, Massimo Vignelli or something. Um, and I think along the way, one of the most like powerful things I've experienced is just incredible mentorship. Um, and especially from, you know, John and Well through their internship experience, you know, when I was speaking with other friends who were in different kinds of internships, I was like, yeah, well, you know, they asked me to come up with a personal project and they helped me, you know, learn how to, that's essentially where I began learning how to design typefaces because I, you know, I first met Well when he was giving a talk at the Cooper Union, uh, speaking about the typefaces he was designing. And I was like, wow, like that's what I would love to do. And so I was so thankful that through their program, like they would really take the time. I was really starting off from zero. Like my college never offered like a type design class. I only took intro to typography, which I always just think it's so funny. And I didn't even get a chance to take the color or anything like that. And, um, and you know, here you are designing identities for ESPN. Here we are. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I found like incredible mentors along the way, like with John and Well, and then obviously all the crew at Sunday afternoon with JC, Juan Carlos, and uh, Ahmed, and yourself, and just really incredible, a really incredible sense of community over at Sunday afternoon. Yeah, such a great sense of community. And I know you and I, we got to finally collaborate together about a year ago on a client that shall never be named, and that was, <laughs> <laughs> which was a fun, enjoyable, arduous process. Uh, but you know, I, I what I loved about that experience was one your your attention to detail and also your willingness to jump right in. Um, and also the level of experimentation, like it felt like we really could have, you know, we could have accomplished a lot if there was appetite to accomplish a lot. For sure. That. You know, and I know we will in the future. Like, yeah, I mean, I definitely <laughs> think you and I were on the same wavelength where we saw the, like the full potential of what this project could be. Unfortunately, you know, 
it didn't get there, but you know, <laughs> it we was fine. We'll have next time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, I felt really bad. I was like, oh man, am I emailing too late? Because I'm a, I'm a late emailer sometimes or an early emailer. But in my head, it's just when I know I can tackle it. And I there was always an implicit understanding to me that it there isn't a responsibility to reply to this. I just need to get it out there. But then I when you'd reply at like a certain time of the evening, I was like, oh damn, I should have. <laughs> sent this note with a caveat that you don't need to reply to this but i i just sensed your your work ethic in in the project which was really something to to behold oh thank you i mean i think i only really have my parents to thank for for really instilling like a sense i mean i won't say thank them but also you know be critical of i think my siblings and i all have an unhealthy sense of work ethic <laughs> where we are unfortunately workaholics and i think it does come back to like learning what you see and not what other people say because like ever since i was like even in high school my parents are always like you're working too hard you're stressing yourself out too much my parents like, said that too like my dad my dad that. would always say that like you're working yeah, too hard like even like, when what we are you were... talking about you work like a maniac yes. I mean, that's the hard part. Like my dad working at the Chrysler plant, there were days where he would work 12 hour shifts, seven days a week, which is just, you know, ridiculous to me. Yeah. But it's really hard to sort of uh, remove yourself from that. If like that's what you grew up seeing. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to, you know, take a step back. And like, I think also there's just like a huge difference in like what it means to have work ethic in like a blue collar world and in the white collar right. like job, like, you know, I have now, um, you know, when people are like, wow, thank you for working so hard. I'm like, I'm just sitting down and drinking coffee, but you're welcome. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, I was like reflecting on that a lot. And I'm also really thankful for like all the jobs I've had along the way, even before I started designing, because it really puts things into perspective, at least for me, like how fortunate I am. And I really do like wake up every morning. And I'm so thankful that I get to be creative and be comfortable and like sit down as I'm working and, you know, even enjoy like the small things like a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it's with when it comes to parents like telling their kids to not work? I, f I feel that that's the um, the mindset of I worked hard so you don't have to work. And and their perception of their kids' success is them chilling. But also, you can't chill because then you're lazy. But then if you yeah, work too see, hard, then it's like, hey, we worked hard for you. You don't have to do that. It's like, well, where's the middle ground? Exactly. There, There is no winning here. <laughs> it's a trap, Rich. It's just a, the immigrant oh, trap. It is the immigrant trap. Oh, my gosh. I'd love to talk about some of the projects that you've done this year. And then for the listener, we are recording this like really literally at the tail end of 2022 like if we were look at the evolutionary scale we're right at the end when the human being is walking upright <laughs> um at the end of december so you you recently you did an identity for espn you did the the espn 50 project that celebrates the 50th anniversary of title nine um that essentially prohibited uh sex or gender-based discrimination in sports Right. And that was an amazing project. And also, you've done work for Planned Parenthood. You also did um, an identity project for Creative Week with the One Club. Like, I'd love to hear a little bit about ESPN and also um, some of the, the major stuff that you've done this year. Yeah. So I just feel, again, so fortunate to have had these opportunities and, um, you know, I'm not the biggest like sports fan. Like I couldn't really tell you much about any sports, uh, which I found a little bit. I'm like, I don't know if I'm the best person for this project, but you know, uh, in the end, I'm like really thrilled with how it came out. Um, I only played like tennis in high school. That's like the only sport I can like watch and understand what's happening. Everything else, I'm like, I can appreciate the outfits and that's about it. And I appreciate how, you know, people could get into it. Uh, but again, that project was so important, not necessarily for the sports aspect of it, but just for like the human rights aspect, at least for me and creating equal opportunities for people to do what they love and like reach their full potential and, you know, follow their passions. And it opened the doors for so many women to have these incredible careers uh, as athletes. Um, and then I also love that it was like the 50th anniversary, like you mentioned. So when I was working with the art director at ESPN, they really wanted a look that was sort of retro based in the 70s um which mm -hmm. i'm a huge fan of that 
sort of era of graphic design mixed with contemporary. So that to me was like a really fun challenge to create and draw this word mark that was very much inspired by 70s typefaces and also still make it feel um, very contemporary and fresh and relatable to today's viewers and athletes. Yeah, totally. Has a bit of that Mexico 68 Olympics vibe to it too. Talk about mid-century. It does. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of Lance Wyman's work. And I think it, I often think about like what is like Mexican graphic design and the design yeah. aesthetic. And many times it is like reinterpreted by uh, European or like white designers, even like Joseph Albers and their appreciation of Mexican design. Yeah. And I often think about that because I'm very much still drawn to like this flat graphic, uh, you know, geometric shapes of graphic design. I think that's what drew me to like mid-century design. But, you know, when a couple years ago and I really began to reflect on it, I'm like, oh, I love that because I grew up seeing that in Mexican design, not necessarily, yeah. you know, Mexican design. When I say Mexican design, I'm talking about like you know, pre-colonization uh, Mexican design. There's still so much of that in different parts of Mexico, and it's still right. very much part of a visual language uh, of so like much. bold of, lines, bold iconography. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like sharp, you know, angles and bold colors and a lot of, right. like, cool meets warm colors. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, it's almost Aztecian a bit, or there is, like, a... a, a a strong visual relationship, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I love that. Like, what what did that mean to you? Because I I started seeing the identity. I, I knew that you did it. And then um, either the algorithm started feeding it to the world or it started feeding it to me because I started talking about it. But then I just started literally seeing it everywhere. And I'm seeing the Disney Plus app, I'm seeing my Bleacher Report app when I'm checking out my scores. Like, I was like, oh, yo, Beatrice is really out here doing her thing. I was so stoked for you. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was so incredible. I think, you know, that moment when we can really see our work out in the world is always so, uh, I think it's still always like a shock to me and it's like so rewarding to see that final product, especially because you know everything that went into it, you know, all the versions and how much work, mm -hmm. you know, the entire team put into it as well. Um, and it's just so rewarding. Also, because for me, it's like design is for the people. It should be out interacting with different communities and people. And so yeah. I always get like really down if like a design of mine never makes it out into the world and or, you know, gets changed or something because I'm like, that's, you know, that to me is sort of like an unsuccessful project. Yeah. And to me, success is like when you can carry out your vision all the way through to seeing it out in the real world. Talk to me about design is for the people. I love hearing that and I agree with that. What does that mean to you? Do you feel that a piece of design or, or identity that you've worked on, does it, does it, do you feel that it belongs to you at a certain point or you're really doing this for the community? Um, I really, I would say I'll do it for the community. I think that's why I've also been so drawn to designing typefaces because typefaces are essentially tools. So I think that's also been a really rewarding thing I've been seeing these last couple of years. Some of the typefaces I've designed have been um, implemented in all of these different use cases that I would have never imagined. And I just love seeing them take a life of their own. But, you know, like when I design a typeface, I it's only like the starting point. And so I want mm. other people to take it and like run with it and create something and be inspired by it and, you know, make it sort of their own. Um, and I think it's a little different with branding because you have to create like a brand system if you really want to create a great brand and make sure that the clients or the community that's going to carry it out through sort of adheres to that. But I've also learned to sort of be more open-minded and let that go, especially if I am working or creating identities like Close the Camps or like One Michigan, which is an immigrant rights group in Detroit. Yeah, like, I want to talk about that, the One Michigan project. Yeah, so the One Michigan project is probably one of my favorite projects just because I met the founder, Jose Franco, when I was like, 18 when I was just like a freshman in college and we were organizing myself and the other co college students at the University of Michigan. And so we partnered up with uh, immigrant rights organizers in Southwest Detroit. So that was like Jose and his group. And he had already started One Michigan back then. And just over the years, we've always collaborated. And even after I graduated, uh, I always just stayed close with them. There was a time where I was like helping 
their students, uh, not their students, they're like members, a lot of their members are high school students. They're very much rooted in like youth and empowering youth to become leaders, which is something I really love. Mm -hmm. And so I, during that time when I was like unemployed and depressed at home, applying to all the jobs in New York, I was also uh, staying really close with One Michigan. And I set up like a little workshop where I was like teaching their high school students how to code and make their own like websites and like HTML, CSS. Um, and so I think for me, working with them has always been such a rewarding experience. And so I think it was in 2020, I knew that they wanted a new visual identity. And so Costa and I were just collaborating on it for a while until we were finally able to come to this place where we were really happy uh, with it, with this new identity. Yeah. Wow. I love that form because well, one, it's just such a confident mark, but also everything that you're doing right now when it comes to um, creative technology also. And this kind of goes back to earlier in our conversation about the relationship between um, physical form in mid-century design to also flat graphic design. Like there, you're really starting to bridge that gap or, re or reconnect those pieces through creative technology and also AR, augmented reality. I'd love to hear a little bit also about your your journey in in that world yeah for sure i mean i think i'm just always so fa equally as fascinated with technology as i am with activism or social justice and you know one these last couple of years i've really been getting a little bit more into like creative coding and finding ways to sort of maybe automate my design process or make it a little bit quicker and it just really got me thinking about this concept of like working smarter, not harder, and also how underrepresented and, you know, people are often the ones that we have to work twice as hard, three times as hard, especially women of color have to work like three times as hard in the workplace. And it just gets me thinking of like, if we can really embrace technology into our workflow, like we wouldn't have to be working three times as hard, we could just work the same amount as other people and our work would still be better. Um, yeah. So why not? Um, so yeah, I think for me, technology just opens so many doors. And it also makes um, I, I see it as a as a way to create a sense of equality, even though obviously, it's so there's a lot of bias in technology, you know, especially when it comes to like AI um, yeah. and even different tools, you know, even coding tools, um, yeah. even the language that we use for for coding can have carry different connotations as well. Um, right. I even just so, saw that new story that um, like the Apple Watch is somehow biased towards communities of color. Oh, you I know, like I didn't read that. Yeah, it's um, it's it's in interesting, like the way that certain systems closed systems perceive um the way individuals communicate and also like the way literally like you know uh witnesses a person you know especially when it comes to like skin tone it's it's there's a lot of work to be done there yeah there really is um but for that reason that you know i think more people who are coming from different backgrounds should be embracing technology because if we only let, you know, like white men be the only ones at the forefront of technology, like things will not change. So we really have to be in there and like trying to uh, embrace it and also like reinterpret it and use it in different ways that serve us in our communities. Yeah. Oh, I see the what the story is now. So the Apple Watch, it's inaccurate. It has a blood oxygen app that's inaccurate for people of color there's a lawsuit about it that's really interesting like oh yes. god i'm yeah. shocked rich i would have never have guessed <laughs> um yeah i mean that's just the horrendous part of like technology where yeah. i'm like obviously there's just like a huge history but especially uh when it comes to like medical help for people of color and especially women of color yeah um uh, yeah. So, yeah, unfortunately, I'm not surprised, but, you know, I guess it's better late than never. So, you know, I hope they right. get their stuff together and, and fix it. All right. Identifying the problem, at least coming to, yeah. at least coming to a solve in some way. And you know, yeah. solves can happen through lawsuits, too. Um, <laughs> wait, I, I have a question when it comes to like disruption like in your head. Do you do you actively seek that out? Because sometimes I think, you know, for a lot for my work or. Um, even something like this podcast, which is a a passion project, right? Essentially, like uh, I seek to 
disrupt an industry in some way? Do you actively seek that? Are you looking for that? Um, yeah, I would say it's like calculated disruption. I think even yeah. if you take a look at like um, the history of activism, I think I found that to be really fascinating because, you know, maybe this is just my public education, but like, you know, I really did think like, oh, Rosa Parks, a nice little old lady just was tired that day and got on the bus. And, you know, the more you learn, you really realize that, oh, it wasn't like that. Like she was part of the NAACP. She was on the ground organizing. It was fully orchestrated, very thoughtful and so like when she refused to give up her seat um it wasn't right. just like on a whim it was very calculated and it wasn't it wasn't a coincidence either yes and i think that to me was really such a like um an important um lesson in terms of disruption i think if you do want to create change you have to be thoughtful with what how you're creating disruption and you have to be intentional about it but i think disruption is such an important I would not only I would almost say it's uh, necessary to create real change. You know, I think there are different ways to achieve positive change, and um, you know, sometimes you do sort of have to play into the system. And some people are better at that. And then I mm -hmm. think there's people who are less patient. And I would say maybe I fall in that category where I'm like, well, it, things don't have to be like this. So why should they be? And those are the people I think who are maybe drawn a little bit more towards disruption. Yeah. Right now, I feel like I'm in a, at a time in my life when I'm, I've learned how to operate within the system, but I've also lost patience for a lot of, <laughs> for a lot of things. Maybe that's a function of age. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I'm still working on, I'm like, hopefully I'll become more patient as I'm getting older. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, this is not great news, Rich. I'm not, I'm not being comforted here. <laughs> well, I think to your point, the, uh, the calculation, your ability to calculate your disruptive tendencies gets better with age. So you know how to disrupt a bit more effectively, let's say, but then when it comes to the things that, you know, with that, that you would go through when you were like a say starting out or like, you know, young in your career or emergence emerging in the industry, those things like just simply will not stand anymore. Right. Just like a certain, like certain um, injustices you'll just immediately catch. Like, that's just not how we should be doing things. I'm going to see something, say something. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to hear a, a bit about um, your, uh, your experience winning young guns this year. Congratulations again. Thank yeah, you. I, yes, you're part of the uh, the incredibly talented uh, Young Guns 20 class with uh, the Art Directors Club and the One Club. Um, I I think I joked about this with uh, JC, uh, Juan Carlos Pagan, um, our mutual homie over at the, at the party seeing you win your award. I was like, wow, we would never win this award now. <laughs> like, everyone's just way too good. And the, the sick part of me was also like, what if uh, all former Young Gunners had to resubmit to keep their Young Gun status? It would just make this really crazy submission process and people would just get like way too thirsty later in their career. But I, it would just be a really interesting social experiment. But oh congratulations God, I mean, I would, to you. You guys should film it like a reality show and I definitely like tune in. <laughs> Oh, like we just pretended to be like, let's say, you know, mid 20 somethings, just submitting our own work. Oh, wow. That would be really yes. interesting. I That's mean, like a stunt. The funny part, I will say a little quick antidote at the Young Guns party. So I, as I mentioned, I have a twin sister. She's a photo editor. So she's not in the design world, you know, but obviously she was there to support me. Right. And Timothy but in the creative Goodman, world. In the creative world, yeah. Timothy Goodman goes up to her um, and is like, congratulations, I'm such a fan of your work. And my sister goes like, oh, that's not me. That's my sister. And she's just trying to make conversation. And she's like, oh, did you win this year? And I was like, you said what? To Timothy Goodman? I was like, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> she was like, how was I supposed to know? But, uh, um, well, I mean, he mistook your sister for you first, so it's that's fine. That's true, yeah. So I, I think that evens out. Um, yeah. yeah, but that was such an incredible night. And, you know, I always feel so torn when it comes to awards because I'm like, they're so subjective. And again, I think they're another thing that are very much, like, biased. But at the same time, I think for myself, like, 
being Latina, being a woman, being a first generation, like college student, not coming from these connections, like that was such a huge thing for me to win, not only like for myself, but also, again, to create sort of a disruption and also show younger designers who are coming from similar backgrounds that we also belong in this space and that we're also creating work that is just as great as other people who maybe have had a lot more like stepping stones along the way. Um, so yeah, it was an incredible night, such a fun night. You know, I'm glad you were there. JC was there, the entire Sunday afternoon family was there. And it really just felt like a night to celebrate everything we've accomplished like as a community. And I don't really just see it like as an award for myself, but really for like all of us and everybody who helped me get there along the way. Yeah, so well-deserved. And also you had the loudest applause for you. <laughs> felt like the room I mean, exploded when they called your name. It was. I was like, I mean, I just think that's also really funny because I'm not necessarily like a loud person. So, <laughs> but I think if you are introverted, many times you do draw in like the extroverts. So it's like really, uh, it was just like so funny to see all of my friends there, which I'm so thankful that they all showed up and like just making, yeah, like as you mentioned, like just like the loudest cheer <laughs> as I was going up on stage. Um, yeah, definitely a, a night I'll never forget. Oh, so awesome. So awesome. Like, wh what is, what are you up to now? Like, what what are you looking forward to in 2023? Again, we are recording this uh, right at the end of the year. What's coming up for you? Um, and also, I just want to hear a little bit about your, uh, yeah, what's getting uh, Beatrice Lozano excited? Yeah, so right now I'm freelancing as an art director over at Apple Music. We're working on some really cool stuff that I cannot go into detail about. I want to hear all about it. I want to hear all about how their technology works. Let's break <laughs> I have all, all the secrets. <laughs> I do. I have all the secrets. Everybody break out the pen and pencil, <laughs> pen and paper. Um, Apple, it was great while it lasted. Um, I think for me, like, I think I still really need to sit down. I think what's exciting for me is like, I never know what's coming in the next year. And I've also been very fortunate these last couple of years where I don't necessarily like chase these projects many times, like even ESPN or different projects. It's just even like Apple, it's people reach out to me and email me. And I think that's often the best kind of projects because they're already familiar with my work and what I'm interested right. in. And so we could truly build something great with my interests. And it's not so much like me trying to fit their vision or like what they want. Uh, for 2023, right. I will not trying to, to like shoehorn your ambition yeah. into their thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for 2023, I just would love to continue sort of doing what I've been doing and, um, really pushing where technology can take design. So I would love to have projects that really embrace like AR or AI or creative coding to some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to continue working on like social impact projects with different marginalized communities. Um, and then also I want to continue, I will be teaching again at Parsons next semester. I've also, oh, yeah. I'll also okay. be teaching, I'm creating an AR class and I'll be teaching that with, at uh, Type Electives, which is an online type school that Juan Villanueva and Lin Yun created. Uh, so that's going to be in the spring. So oh, yeah. Shout out to Juan Villanueva, former yeah, guest of the to, pod. To the shout out to Juan and Lin. Um, they have also been really incredible mentors. And Oh, shout uh, out to Lin. Yeah, Lin was, uh, we, we sat on the AIGA New York board together. She's wonderful. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're both super awesome. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, we didn't actually touch on um, artificial intelligence or or AI. Like, because, you know, I, I really think of you as like a, a creative technologist as much as a designer. Like, what what do you think about AI? AI generated imagery, AI generated anything. Uh, but also, like, what are the in your eyes the the pitfalls of certain creative technologies? There's this huge back and forth right now about. Um, uh, about the uh, the artist's rights within AI. It's a little, it's a bit interesting, no? Yeah, so I feel very conflicted because I think yeah. we are still- Hot takes, this, hot takes zone. Yeah, the hot takes only. This is, we're at a point where I think we're still all trying to navigate it and understand its potential. Um, yeah. But I think as somebody, like I'm much more drawn to 
conceptual work or like how we can combine different elements together to create something new yeah so i think i don't feel necessarily myself like i don't think oh ai will ever take over my job or like my work right. will be used or replicated because i'm like i would love for ai to like replicate my work how fun would that be but knowing that i have to go through like five different softwares to create like an ar typography post for instagram yeah like, it's like no it way it's be... still work it's still yeah you still have to have a, an idea behind it so for me it's still very much um just as a way to create ideas or to enhance a project i feel very much for like the illustrators or photographers who feel like their work is getting ripped off i definitely think they should be getting compensated in some way like i think yeah. if we can create ai technology we can we definitely have the tools to be able to track down what images they're pulling from and maybe find a way to pay back those artists if they're right. even like agree what are we training it. the algorithm with i think is a big question right yeah that's a huge one too and i think even like facial recognition and obviously race plays a, a role into it as well um i think there's it's still in many ways i think it can be a bit scary because as all technology is because we're unfamiliar with it um mm -hmm. but i think there's going to be a lot of positive that comes out of it and also in this in the same idea of like working smarter not harder i as yes. also as a workaholic i think you know it's not healthy for humans to be working you know 10 hours even eight hours sitting down in front of a computer and if we're developing the tools that can help us cut down the time to like four hours we should all be embracing that and then just going on and enjoying the rest of our day um <laughs> and you know i've only used ai for like a couple projects and um but even like when i wanted some sort of like illustrated elements or anything like that i you know ai created visuals that would take me so many hours to create if yeah. i wasn't using midjourney or something like that um and but i mean i took it into photoshop and changed it and like made it my own but still it really does save you so much time and i think that's to me the most um promising and exciting part about ai well the that it saves time, but it also generates ideas that like you can't even think about, or yeah. it's like surprising you with new versions of what your idea was. Totally. Yeah. I, I look at um, AI as, well, one, you know, creating a much more of a, an efficiency, right. And uh, helping you get past some sort of creative block. I think those are like just really core low hanging fruit things that AI can help help you with and like even automation like what you're saying about working smarter and not harder if if automation and ai can somehow eliminate three or four steps in what is like typically a longer pipeline i think that's great i think when it comes to artists you know and and their work um very you know storied and also like you know iconic living artists and their work be used to train ai and and essentially that them losing control over their creative identity i think that that's that's definitely a, a problem that i think creative technologists need to have a bit more safeguards rules around protocol around etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think net net um ai is gonna it's changing what we're gonna do it's like even just because you used ai in some sort of project it's it's like saying you used illustrator it's like there's still yes yeah for sure i mean it. it's the future i think of uh the creative industry and even the other day, I forgot the exact name, but our mutual friend Jens sent me a link to, it was like the chat. Shout out GP. to Jens. Shout out to Jens. It was uh, the chat AI, but it was like the coding version. And he sent me like a little screen recording. I guess he typed into the chat bot where it's like, make me this P5 coded animation and it made it for him. And then I'm like, oh, I need to try this. And I went oh, on there and it I- it can generate coded, code for you? Get out of here. generate code. Yeah, I was like, create a website that lets you input and, and then it, it's going to like print out really large type with a gradient and it's going to be animated. And it did that for me. And it was like really eye-opening Wait, did it output raw code? And then you had to like yes. put the it gives the you code into okay well it gives you raw code on the left side and on the right you could see like the functioning website and it, you can even tell it like i want this in html css i want this in p5 i want this in you know probably python whatever you want your code what? in which i think and is it'll give you like incredible. a staging site too that's insane uh, well you could just copy the code it's just like on oh. your website you could see it live but then you can always like copy it to your own like server or something like that but that is wild to me that was so interesting because this past year i've been teaching like intro to code at parsons and i was like wow this is really 
you know, the future of design. And I was thinking, you know, if one of my students used this to make their project, I wouldn't give them a bad grade. You know, I just really think like that's them embracing the tools that we have, you know, as long as they actually like went through the code and tried did their best to understand what was happening. But I think that's very much the future of code where like, I don't necessarily think we're all going to have to learn how to code the way people were saying a couple of years ago, like everybody needs to learn how to code. I don't really see that even in my work with like augmented reality a couple of years ago when I did start designing in AR, it was all purely like in code. And now so many people like Meta and Apple have made tools where anybody can make AR designs with zero code. Um, It's all about access, I think. Yep. That's, I think that's the future Like people making tools to make these really complicated uh, technologies, super accessible for everyday creatives. Yeah, no, exactly. Like sometimes I think about tools like like Canva, right? Mm-hmm. Canva, which is um, um, a, a very, you know, everybody friendly, uh, like Photoshop, let's say, like Photoshop and Keynote tools, which are which require like a bit of like introduction. Like I think of something like that. I think that's a very powerful tool that allows for you know the everyday creative to to produce something. So, you know, when whenever you push a bar in one space, the the bar for the practitioners or those who are like living the day to day, that gets pushed even further. I'm looking I'm really looking forward to having the possibilities just be really endless. For sure. I mean, even in Canva, like I actually designed the I designed a lot of the One Michigan system in Canva because the people carrying it out are going to be high schoolers who don't have Photoshop, who don't have Illustrator, don't have the means to access those tools. And I think they can't pay the subscription, let's say. Yeah, they can't pay this. I mean, there's always ways to get it, but they can't pay the subscription. Uh, So I think that's really exciting for me because it's making branding or identity design or graphic design super accessible to people who would have never had access to it before. And I think to me, what's the most exciting part of it, it's like we're now breaking those barriers and so many more people can now have opinions and experience in this field and bring their perspectives into it. And that will hopefully change how we understand design in the years to come. So I want to ask you one last question about something that you said last time, and you said we design with an accent, which I think was like a really beautiful phrase about personal authorship as like a personal um, approach towards design. Can you speak a little bit about that and also what that means to you? Yeah, so I think I was very, I'm very conscious, especially, you know, since I was a kid of what it means to have an accent, because my first language was Spanish. And then, you know, over over time, I've lost a lot of my Spanish. And I feel like I really have an accent in both of my languages. Like, it's so obvious that, you know, obviously, I'm American when I'm trying to speak Spanish. And maybe now over time, some of my accent has, I've lost some of my like Spanish speaking accent, but it was very prominent, I think, when I was younger. And so I think design is very similar in that way. It's just a different form of communicating instead of verbally, we're just visually communicating. And so I think all of our visuals that we're drawn to are very much impacted by the culture that we're in and our it could be your upbringing, but it can also just be your current surroundings. I, when I say culture, I don't necessarily mean like I design like a Mexican American woman. It just, you know, like I'm very much influenced by everything that I've been drawn to, whether that means, you know, like factory signs or industry right. signs in Detroit or went to Detroit or like the color palettes that I grew up with or typefaces that I saw in like food packaging growing up. Like I think all of these things add up to our to have our own view of what is you know beautiful or well designed or you know it, even function can be reinterpreted and i think uh all of us are truly designing with our own accents and i think there is no version of design that doesn't have an accent and obviously i think in the design world people truly do believe that maybe they think like swiss design is you know the perfect uh design that doesn't taken personal perspective, which obviously I don't think that's true. I just think that's just, you know, very similar to how some American people tell others like, oh, I love your accent. And, you know, well, it's like, well, you're, you also have an accent. So it's like, it just depends on what side of the conversation that you're on and what perspective you're hearing that from. Yeah. And I think that's what I loved about that, that phrase, right? The, uh, the idea of the accent not being limited to one's like, 
geographical heritage, right, um, or cultural heritage, but it's it is really about the totality of the individual and also how he, she, or they perceives the world, and also providing that uh, validity um, that allows one's identity to enter their work. Yeah, definitely. And it could just be like in, in small things. It doesn't have to be, you know, over the top. But I think, right. you know, I think even in your work, people who, you know, are Filipinos or like from the sneaker culture, they could see those influences in your work and maybe some way that other people might not pick up on it. And that's okay. Like it doesn't have to be so over the top. And I think that's, you know, similar in my work, even in like some of my typefaces where it resonates with certain communities or certain people. And it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be shouted. It's just sort of this understanding uh, that's coming through in your work. Amazing. What a wonderful way to end this conversation. <laughs> Beatrice, thank you so much for coming on First Generation Burden again. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was really fun. You know, we should do do this again. Another time, maybe we definitely a could, couple years we're down definitely the line. Gonna do this one again. <laughs> yes, we'd love to hear more. Well, tell all the listeners uh, where they can find you, where they can find your work. Uh, so a lot of my work is posted on my website. So beachgazelle.com, you know, the URL, you know, that's always a struggle. And then on Instagram, <laughs> I'm at beatloz, so B-E-A-T-L-O-Z. Again, another struggle trying to find that username. But, you know, we were too far in, so we're just going to stay with it. <laughs> Amazing. Beatrice, thanks again. And also, Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. That was a great conversation with Beatrice. Um, I always love talking to her. Stoked to uh, see her do so well in the world. And also, yeah, congrats to, to her again on Young Guns 20. Massive, massive moves in her life. And also, thanks to you, the listener. You can find the First Generation Burden podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. It helps the algorithm. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're firstgenburden, at firstgenburden. You can also find me, your host, at rich underscore to you on most social media platforms. Thanks to Timothy Simonson for production. Shout out to Jim Class Heroes. Thanks to the DesGen team for their support. Shout out to DesGen. Um, thank you to Eugenia Mello, who illustrated our cover art. Um, where you can see on all podcast platforms. Also, thanks to you, the listener. We drop new episodes on Monday. Season eight, almost done. We only got two more left. They're really fun ones. New episode next week. Be safe, everyone. Bye.